We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 today. We're picking back up in our uh, study that we've been, been in uh, just before uh, the Christmas season. We started it back in September. Uh, we've got three more weeks, this and two more weeks, and we will finish it out. Uh, and we're, we're coming to the place where Solomon is drawing his conclusions. He's, he's basically bringing together all that he has been getting at. And, and after he has established some of these basic truths and presented many of his observations, he's coming to the place where he's tying it all up and pulling all the strings together so that we can kind of see what life is like here under the sun. And, and since we've been away, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't, maybe this is not the best illustration, but, but um, you know, we, we have series premieres on uh, your favorite television show. And after they've been gone for the summer or even over the Christmas season, they'll come back and they'll since, you know, this is what's been happening. Well, we need to kind of do that with Ecclesiastes to get it back in our mind. There's been a lot of things happen, a lot of things we've looked at. And I just want to get some of the main premises in your mind before we read and study Today And so, so we're going to start by just kind of highlighting some of those. So one of the first that we see, if you flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you see this, this phrase that Solomon uses about life under the sun. That's been his focus. He is not describing everything in the created world or, or everything. I'm sorry. He is describing everything that has been created, but not that is eternal. He's describing what life is like here from a person's perspective, from a very human-centric, human-oriented perspective. Every so often, he has pulled back the veil and he has allowed us to see God's eternal view. And he's done it very strategically, very purposefully, but for the most part, all of his observations, all of his wisdom, all of his, all of his expectations of what is to happen in this life are described from the perspective of a human so what we can see, right, what we can experience, what we can observe, that's been the purpose, the life under the sun. And he tells us at the very beginning, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by toil at which he toils under the sun? That's another primary premise of the whole Book. In fact, where he starts is where he's going to end. When we get there in a couple of weeks, you'll see it. He's going to end at that very same place that he started. Um, the, the idea is, is that there is everything we do in this life ends in futility. No matter how much work we do, no matter how much wealth we accumulate, no, much, no matter how much pleasure we can have, no matter how much wisdom we can grow in and exercise... At some point, it will not produce enough profit to enable us to pay the debt that life needs. Everyone will die. Everyone will, at some point, no matter how hard they try, they will die. Now, it's a very heavy, weighty thing to deal with. But it is a very real truth. A lot of people look at this book and they think that in some way Solomon must be a pessimist or he must be, one pastor actually said that he thinks he's in a midlife crisis. But my suggestion and my take on this book is that Solomon is just being really honest about our circumstance and about our situation. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can attain. No, no amount of wealth, no amount of pleasure, no amount of work, no amount of wisdom 
that will help us defeat death. We will all die. And from where Solomon's writing and from his position in history in the work of God's redemptive plan, he sees a promise that's out there, that there's something more out there, but he doesn't have the view that we have. So he seems very hopeless. He seems very, very um, without any sense of we have no idea what happens later. All he can see is the futility of this life under the sun. All he can see is that what we do in and of itself doesn't work. We're confronted with that over and over and over through the book. And we get to chapter 3 and we see that everything has a season. There's a a time and a place and a season for everything in this life under the sun. And this is where he kind of pulls the veil back and allows us to see a sovereign God at work. He begins to let us see that that, yeah, everything around us is outside of our control, but it is not outside the control of the sovereign God who orders all things, that, that determines when it is right to, to live and to be born and when, when it is right to die. He, he's the one who determines when it's right to plant and when it's right to pluck up. He's the one who sets the seasons. And he does it in such a way that he's doing it to fulfill his purposes. This is Solomon's point. This is Solomon's perspective. Is Solomon's intention to let us see that this God is sovereignly ordering all these things to make us beautiful in time, in his time and by his method. And then he tells us, well, to interact with this God, to relate to this God, he teaches us to fear God. And every time we've talked about this, you can see it as you flip through. Every time we've talked about this, I've, I've been brought to the place where I've, we just recognize that it's a difficult concept to grasp for American Christians. We are, we are brought up in a way and we are taught the gospel, many of us, from a very early age. And so the idea of a fearsome God it seems foreign to us because we hear so much of his grace and so much of his mercy and so much of Jesus Christ that there's no reason to fear in our minds anymore. But when we get really real, when we get really honest, when we get really truthful about who we are apart from this God, there's all kind of reason to fear. There's all kinds of reasons that we should be quaking in our boots. We were talking about it this morning in, in, in our equip class. Um, I was set in on the gospel project class this morning. And one of the things I was reminded of as we were walking through it was just the reality that I was saved in as, an, as an adult. And I have a definite and clear recollection of what it was to be a lost person, to be a non-Christian, to be without God in the world. My mother and father had done a really good job of teaching us the gospel when we were growing up. I knew what it was. That Jesus had died on a cross. I knew the answers to the test. In fact, if you had given me a test, I could have passed the test, but I was dead. I was without life. And I had no understanding and no comprehension of what it would be to fear God. But in the moment that he converted me from death to life, I saw my sin and it scared me. And in that moment, I found his mercy and his grace. You see, there's a reality that it's difficult for us sitting on this side of the cross to recognize the fearsome and awesome God that he is. But that is a result of his grace. And not simply because he's not fearsome. Not terrifying. 
not completely capable and powerful and sovereign enough to crush us just like that. So Solomon deals with that from this very human perspective, this very human reality. We are seeing that we have a life under the sun where it is filled with futility and no gain, that there are seasons and cycles in which they come and go dealing with um, both frustration and fortune, moving from times and seasons of, of, of things working out well and then things going very badly. And, and there's a sovereign God who sits over them all and we are called to fear him. In fact, for Solomon, this is the very beginning of wisdom. It's the very beginning of how it is that we walk and live in this world in the way that's best. He calls us to fear God and then he calls us to live wisely. He teaches us wisdom is better and it's better to be a, to be a wise man than to be a fool. It's better to have wisdom than power. Even though, limit, even though wisdom is limited and wisdom is Vulnerable Wisdom can't accomplish everything we want. It is also subject to the futility that the creation is subject to. It's limited. And it's vulnerable to our foolishness. There is a reality that as wise as we get, there's always a piece of us that walks in absolute folly. And I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm not trying to be demeaning. It's just the reality of who we are apart from Christ. The old man that lives within us is fighting hard for his foolish and dark desires. Solomon says, put that to death, walk in wisdom. It's better to be wise. It's better to be, to act in wisdom or to, to use wisdom than to just reside in foolishness. And then over and over every week, while it's not clearly stated in this book, we have come to the place where we see that Jesus is the great solution. Solomon does something for us in, 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 I give you an insight into how I prepare sermons. Um, Solomon does something for us that's made some of my preparation very easy. He shows us how broken the world we live in is. He gives us a focus that, that we can look at and see that exists and is true because we live in a fallen world. In the words of in the, the program or homiletic style of Brian Chapel, it's called our fallen condition focus. What is true because we are sinners or live in a sinner's world is being shown to us over and over and over by Solomon. Wisdom is, is vulnerable to folly because we live in a sinful world and we ourselves are sinners. Wisdom is better than power because, because the reality is we're all fools and need wisdom more than we need power. The reality of fearing God exists in a quaking sense because we have rebelled and rejected him. But at every turn, we have stopped and looked at how the Bible answers our great problem. He shows us the answer to our fallen condition focus by showing us that Jesus is our great solution. There is a lot of heavy, a lot of difficult, a lot of weighty things that, that happen that we're called to look at in Ecclesiastes. Many people stay away from this book because it's so difficult to consider. I've heard it called by one uh, mentor of mine, this most depressing book in the whole of the Bible. And maybe if it stood by itself, it would lead us to a place of despair, a place of depression. 
But thank God it doesn't. It sits in the scriptures in a way that points us to a place where we long for something more. And we see over and over and over in the, in the New Testament how Jesus is that something more. And every week we've done that. Every week we've looked at these heavy and weighty things, these big themes, these big, difficult themes. And we've seen Jesus be our satisfaction, be our source of joy, to be our peace, and to be the reason why we stand in awe of God and respect him instead of run and hide from him. So without further ado, now that we have that all in mind, let's read and study from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Solomon says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or to eight, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the in the womb of a woman with a child with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We are dependent. We are um, in need, we are the ones who are uh, lacking, and you are not. And so I ask that in this, in this moment, in this time, that you would use your word. Speak to us, your people. Teach us. Grow us and enable us to walk in faith. That we might obey you, that we might rejoice because of you. That we, we might simply give our whole life to living in relationship with you. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, with all the talk about, about futility that happens throughout the book, we're confronted with it over and over. Solomon presents this idea that what we do is not going to produce the profit that we think it should or that we would want it to. We, we could begin to assume that, oh, well, I just, if it's not going to work, why even try? Like, why not just sit down and cross my arms and, I, I don't know, how's that go? Hope, I don't know what it, I don't know. Everybody hates me. I think I eat some worms, right? Like, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just give up? Add to that the clear teaching of God's sovereignty that, that Solomon presents to us. The, the, the sovereignty of God that he rules over the times and seasons for his purposes. And he's the one that determines when it's a time to dance and a time to mourn, a time to laugh and a time to cry. He's the one that has control over that. We have no control over these things. We have no control over when they come or how long they last or when they'll go. We are at the mercy of God's sovereign plan. So why not just kick back and endure the ride? He goes further here by laying out the limits and vulnerability of wisdom. That's really what happens in, in chapters uh, seven, 7 through uh, 10. We see over and over the limits and the, and the weaknesses of wisdom. We're all going to end up with flies in the ointment. No matter how hard we try not to, we're all going to end up with 
with things that we strive to accomplish and strive to do, and we will fail. Well, if that's the case, then why bother? I mean, it's really, there's, I mean, you think about it, the, the, the perspective isn't so foreign to us. The reality is it's not such a foreign concept. In fact, a lot of people who read Ecclesiastes, they think, well, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about it because it's just going to make me depressed. It's just going to make me f- move into despair. And I, I'm just not going to want any part of anything anymore because that's what they can, that's all they can see. Solomon says, No. As he comes to the conclusion of his, of his book, as he comes to the conclusion of this teaching of wisdom, he's like, no. Now is not the time to sit down and do nothing. Now is not the time to not act. Now is not the time to not get up and pursue the things that we know we're supposed to pursue. In fact, he says, it's time to act. That's what this whole thing is about. This, these six verses is, is about acting in faith. Where wisdom and where conventional wisdom would say, well, that's not worth it. Someone says, no. When you trust the God who makes everything, it's worth it. See, our wisdom, our wisdom is limited by what we don't know. But faith in the sovereign God unites us with the one who knows all, controls all, and can do you can hear it you don't know you don't know you don't know but that is not an excuse to not act he calls us to action trusting that God is at work so sometimes I, th- I think we live so deeply in our perspective so deeply in our understanding of the way things work that it's easy for us to just use these things in our perspectives to, to decide, well, it's just not worth doing this. It's just not worth it. We let our own perspectives, our own worldly wisdom lead us to inaction. Or, or we decide based on what we're acting is built completely on our own perspective because it makes sense to us. For example, why is it, and I'm just going to assume this is true of everyone in this room, Why is it that a people who are firmly convinced that faith in Jesus Christ saves us from an eternal hell and guarantees for us an eternity in heaven, and that would be true for anyone who believes, why is it that we aren't out there pounding the streets making sure everyone hears the gospel? Why is it that each and every one of our coworkers, neighbors, family members, and even the people we meet on the street aren't hearing the gospel every time we have the opportunity? And by opportunity, I mean time with them. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, and I know that. I, I, I'm, I'm a human too. I, I deal with these things. We, we don't want to push people away. That's one that I hear often. I just don't want to be too confrontational. I don't want to push anybody away. We don't want to be hurtful. We're afraid we don't know enough. Well, I just don't know enough yet. I, I, I might be asked a question I can't answer. They might know more about it than I do. And, and, and man, that really scares me because what if I'm wrong? I think often, though, the reason we don't evangelize at the drop of a hat and purposefully live to make sure that people are hearing the gospel 
is because the world just doesn't seem interested. Think about it. They're not looking for Jesus. If they were looking for Jesus, sure, I'd tell them about it. Because I wouldn't have to worry about being rejected. Because I wouldn't have to worry about being confrontational. Because I wouldn't have to worry about the cost that comes to me. If they just seemed interested. But since they don't, in my conventional wisdom, in my understanding, the way I'm using my knowledge... I'm just going to decide for them. They would tell me no anyway. They would reject me. They're not going to say yes. They're not going to do what what I know they should do. So we decide we know what the outcome will be. And so rather than tell someone the gospel, we keep talking about the weather. Because that's not confrontational. Because that's not going to be pushing anybody away. The problem with talking about the weather is it's also not going to bring them closer to Christ. See, Solomon's point in this passage is that because our wisdom is limited by what we know, we shouldn't act simply because it seems wise to us. We should act with a faith in God that's dependent upon who he is, what he's done, and what he's commanded us to do. And what he's capable of doing. Ligon Duncan, a Presbyterian pastor, tells the story of how one of the elders in his church is a Presbyterian church, which if you know much about the Presbyterians, is uh, they they are often called the frozen chosen because they're very somber people. You know, they're all about the word. They're not about emotion, not about expressing themselves. And I'm not trying to be rude about it. It's just a a stereotype that, that fits pretty well. But a lot of people assume that Presbyterians aren't very evangelistic because they're so sold out on the sovereignty of God. But Ligon Duncan tells this story about one of the elders in his church. This, this man's from Mississippi. And he, he would travel every year as a short-term mission trip to Ukraine, and he would do street preaching and, and door-to-door evangelism, kind of like what we do in Africa, except that Ukraine is going to be a little bit, well, they're going to have real streets, and they're going to have real doors, right? They don't have that in Africa. They have donkey cart paths, and, uh, well, some of them have doors. But, but it's, simply, it's essentially the same thing. Some would respond to the gospel as he preaching on the street with the team. And some would, as they knock on doors, they would have opportunity. People would make a profession of faith. But even those that did, not all followed up in discipleship. Not all demonstrated the reality that it was true in their life and began to walk that way and live a repentant and faithful life. Well, the reality is this guy just doesn't know. None of us really do. Whether or not these things are real or whether or not it's really worthwhile, it's a lot of effort, a lot of time taken to go and do this work. One day, this Presbyterian elder, he's out with friends, they're in the Ukraine and stopped someone to take their picture together. And after the man took their photo, he tells the Presbyterian elder this. This is what he says. You probably don't remember me. But four years ago, you came to my apartment and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, how he died for sinners like me. I prayed that prayer. But I was just going through the motions to please my mother. I was in a very bad condition for about two years after that. I completely lost hope. I was drugging and drinking, intending just to kill myself. But in God's mercy, I remembered what you told me, that Christ died for sinners. And his blood was for my sins. I prayed again, and this time I meant it. 
He really did come into my heart. I have been delivered. You probably wonder sometimes if what you are really doing, or doing really does any good. For me, God used it to save my life and my soul. You see, the problem with us deciding for everybody based on our own wisdom what is going to work and what isn't, what method is right and what method is wrong, and what we will do and when we will do it, the problem with that is it's based on our wisdom. Our wisdom is limited by our knowledge. But when we walk in faith, we are united with a God who knows all, who can do all, and who controls all. You see, the reality is that this passage isn't just simply about us going out and evangelizing. Solomon's call to, an act, to, to acting in faith isn't simply just going around and knocking on doors and and. and, and Catching people on the street. The principle, I think, applies across our life. I've used the illustration of evangelism simply because it's a place that I think we're so easily identifiable. We hold something in such great, there's something in common there. But whether it's evangelism or prayer, I mean, why is it that we're not a praying people if we're not a praying People. Why? Except that based on what we can see and what we can observe, He doesn't always answer our prayer. Maybe the reason He doesn't answer our prayers is not because they're not being offered but because we're not being persistent in prayer. Why is it that we'll make a, make a New Year's resolution to read the Bible through in a year or just begin to read the Bible at all? And then we get to the begats and we give up. Because is that really worth it? Is it really going to do his work in me? Based on the conventional wisdom that we can see and observe, maybe not. But when that wisdom meets faith in a sovereign God who is all powerful, who is all knowing and who is present in all places at all times, it makes a difference. You see, the reality is this. When we act in faith, God actually works. And we get to rejoice when we see him work. It doesn't limit his work. God isn't not working simply because we aren't believing or acting faithfully. We're, we're not that big. But we don't get to enjoy it while his faithful people do. That's what the point of this passage is. That's what Solomon's getting at. He set up this, this reality that we live in, this very difficult and true life that we live under the sun. And it would by all counts say, run and hide. Make your own way. Do your own thing. Find joy wherever you can find it. 
Who cares about anything? Because I'm going to die anyway. I might as well just run and eat and drink and be merry as I can till that day comes. Throw everything else to the wind. He says, no. Trust your God. We see that. He starts right here. Verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or eight, and for you know... Not what disaster may happen on the earth. And we start in these two verses and we see uh, Solomon's talking about, man, that, what does that mean? Cast your bread upon the waters. That sounds terrible. What happens to bread when you put it in water? I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dissolve. It's gonna... I don't like soggy bread. In fact, one of the reasons I hate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches so much is I'd open that brown paper bag. Every day my mom would send that brown paper bag with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Something sitting on top of it. And because of the weight, maybe just because it was jelly be soaked right through the bread. Just absolutely disgusting. She might as well have just given me dough. Right? It's gross. Didn't help that there was peanut butter there. But the soggy bread was enough. What in the world is he talking about? It's casting bread on water and it's going to return? Well, there's three interpretations that people tend to that historically have held. Three major interpretations. First is Solomon's making reference to giving charitably to the poor. Uh, the idea is that giving to the poor, some reward eventually comes back to you. There's a reality that you're not going to get that bread back, right? Because you're putting it on water. But in some way, there's a reward that comes back. Now, I don't think that's probably what it applies to specifically I, I i hold one of these two these next two views and really the third one's where i kind of land out the most but second the second interpretation is that solomon's making a point about business that as we do business in this world we're not supposed to just sit down and do nothing we've got to be about doing business because that's the world we live in and and they think that solomon had in mind the ships that he had that were going from him to uh, Tarshish and coming back every three years. You can read about it in First Kings. I'll just read this verse. It's not on the screen. First Kings ten twenty two. For the king had a fleet of ships at Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. He had made he he had made a, an agreement with with the king of Tyre. Uh, Hiram, Hiram, I don't know how you say that exactly, but you get the point. He, he's got this agreement with him, and, and now they are trading together. And so every so often, the ships would leave Solomon, and that essentially bringing stuff to the king of Tyre, and then they would come back and bring treasure. And it says this, 1 Kings ten twenty two. For the king had a fleet of ships at Tarshish, at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and Peacocks. The idea is that he would send his bread out over the water and it would come back bearing treasure periodically. Not, not just re- all the time, but there patience that's required to wait and things like that. And there's some people that think that's what he's referring to, that that's exactly what he's talking about. And then there's a third in- interpretation, and this is kind of where I land, is that bread in the water is a metaphor for doing something that's really senseless. That based on all the conventional wisdom, based on what we can see, what we know, what our observations are, it doesn't really make sense. The bread merely dissolves. But this action, which is counseled, can nevertheless paradoxically lead to an unexpected successful result. So we see it over and over in the New Testament when Jesus says, if you want to live, you must die. Right? What doesn't make sense? How... how how do I live if I die? It takes a amount of wisdom, but it also takes a measure of faith. 
See, I think that this third, I think that this third perspective is a, the principle that's really being applied by this proverbial statement. I, I think that this applies across our lives where wisdom says don't act, where our conventional wisdom says don't act. Faith in God leads us to action. In fact, wise action always requires faith. Always. There's never a time where you will act in which you will not be taking some measured step of faith. The question is, what are you exercising faith in? What are you trusting? When we don't evangelize because we decide what the person's going to do, who are you trusting? Yourself. You've decided that you know, even though you've not seen the actual result, it's a, it's a measure, act of wisdom, using faith, but your faith is in your own wisdom. This is wisdom to trust God. And we see that as he comes down to verse 5, where he says, as you do not know the, the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Wise action requires faith in God. If you're going to truly act wisely, not conventional wisdom, not wisdom based on yourself, if you're going to really act in wisdom, it is going to require faith in God because what we know is never enough. And what we don't know is always too much. What we know is never enough. Well, there's some things he actually tells us we know. There's a lot of things he tells us we don't know. You don't know the disasters that are coming. You don't know the future. He says that in verse 2. You, you don't know that the dark gray clouds, or, or you do know that the dark gray clouds are bringing rain. Like we can look out and we can see today, oh, it's going to be a kind of, kind of nice day. I think I'll plan something for the day. But how often are we wrong? And we make jokes about it around here. Our weathermen are always wrong. Because just because we see it doesn't mean it's actually happened. See, we can see that the dark, and we can know that the dark clouds bring rain, but you don't know if it will be too little or too much or if it will fall on you or fall on your neighbor. Even what we don't know, even what we do know, we're limited in what we do know. What we know is never enough and what we don't know is always too much. Even though you know how babies are made, you don't know how God makes them live. Do you? No. We get to be a part of that process. But we can't possibly know how it actually happens. Nor do you know all that God is sovereignly doing. Even though you know he's sovereign. You see, we, 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 may, we may know a lot. But it's never enough. What we know. Is never enough. What we don't know is always too much. Solomon's point through this last section of the book is it's always better to be wise than to be a fool. But even wisdom is limited. And he shows us that the greatest limit to wisdom is our knowledge. It, it, we've been defining wisdom as the ability to use knowledge. So being putting to practice, applying what we know is wisdom. That's the biblical perspective of it. Well, then clearly the, the limit to our wisdom, to conventional wisdom, is what we can know. This is, the, this is the limitation he's showing us here. But more than that, he's saying that there's a, there's a way to experience wisdom that's beyond us. There's a way to know wisdom that's not from us. 
You may not know the work of God. You may not know why He does what He does. You may not know how He does what He does. But He knows. The question is, can you trust the one who knows? Can you trust Him and act because He knows? Can you trust Him that He knows what's going to happen? Can you trust Him to know that when you obey Him in evangelism or prayer, in in reading the Word, when you walk in obedience to His commands in His Word, that He knows the outcome? Can you trust Him that even though it doesn't always make sense to you, it makes sense to Him because He knows what the outcome is? See, what Solomon is calling us to is not to act in our wisdom but to trust the wisdom of the God who's not limited in knowledge, not limited in control, and not limited in capability. What we, what we can know is always too little. What we don't know is always too much. And so we must trust God. Wise action always requires faith because what we can control is always outweighed by what we can't. See, not only are we limited in knowledge, we are limited in control. Now, I think everybody knows this probably that knows my wife. Uh, We've talked about this before. And so I hope I didn't get permission about this before. This is coming to my mind. So love you, baby. (laughs) When we met, she was a closet control freak. She liked to say that she was organized, a planner. She, you know, she had her stuff together. And she does do that. I don't want to take away from that. But the underlying motive was her desire for control. Is that true? She's still in the closet. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The reality is, is that there's too too many things going on in this world for us to control it all. Too, Too many variables. What we really can control is always out by, outweighed by what we can't. Not, not, not only is our knowledge limited, our control is limited. We see it, verse 2, diversifying is something we can control. So he says, right, he, he, he tells us, cast your bread on the water and it will return to you. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or eight or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. I don't know what disaster is coming. I don't know. I don't get to control when it happens or how long it comes or how bad it is. But I do control whether or not I divide the portion up among many things or whether I do it all for one. Right? Like I can decide whether... And let's just use the, the idea of, of giving generously. I don't think that's the primary purpose. I think there's a principle of us living wisely under the, the sovereignty of God. But, but let's just consider giving generously for a minute. We don't know what kind of things are coming people's way. So instead of sitting around and waiting and being generous to people before they have the need. How shocking a thing is that? Well, I'm not, I'll give when I find out that somebody needs and has a need, but that's the psalmist saying, let's just live liberally generous lives in that case. I have control over how much I give away, but I don't control what kind of disasters happen that, that, that cause needs. We can realize that a tree has fallen. But we don't control which direction the wind blows to make it fall. See, we don't control whether that's a north wind or a south wind or whether that tree ends up laying on the ground facing the north or facing the south or east or west. For crying out loud, it could be northwest or northeast, right? We don't get to control those things. 
We can see all the evidences of the wind. We can know the wind is, is, is out there. We can see the, wind, the, the leaves blow. We can see the way that the, the storm came blowing through because the trees land on the ground. But we can't control it. We may have some measure of control over whether seeds are put in the ground. But we can't control over whether they bear fruit. There's no farmer in the world who's been able to force a crop to come up. But there's no farmer in the world who's ever gotten a crop who didn't first put seed in the ground. We have control over where we plant, but we can't make anything grow. See, because we don't, we can't control a lot of things around us. We often choose an action, right? Like we just, well, I can't control that. I'm just not going to try it. Convince, conventional wisdom dictates inaction. But the reality is that if we just wait, if, if we just sit and wait, we don't do anything. We'll never see anything happen. This is his point in verse 4 when he says, the, the one who regards the clouds, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If we're sitting around waiting for that perfect, that perfect time, I don't want the wind blowing too hard because I don't want my seed blown away. So I'm not going to plant any plants. I, I, I don't want to plant at the wrong time. I, I'm just waiting for the right time when I know it's going to rain so my seed will grow. See, we're trying to control everything such that we have the, the outcome figured out. We're looking for that perfect time, that perfect, that perfect set of circumstances to come to be. Solomon is saying, you will be waiting and never do anything. And if you never do anything, you can't ever expect anything to happen. Instead... Trust the God who does control these things. Trust the God who is the one who determines what disaster comes, what season comes, whether fortune or, or um, uh, frustration. What, what season is coming, whether it's rain or drought, whether it's time to dance or time to mourn, whether it's time to plant or time to pluck up. Do things not based on your own wisdom and your own observations and your own Control, but trusting that God is in control. And it seems like we got this figured out in terms of, I mean, like, well, come on. I mean, we, we, we know how to farm. We, we know that the springtime is the right to plant and that, that, that the fall is going to be time for harvest and, and many things. We, we can even control it and build buildings and grow inside of these buildings so that we can grow these things all year long. We figured this out. We have control. I, I knew a guy who built one of those greenhouse things. He was going to live and have this hydroponic thing. And for whatever reason, it never worked. No matter how hard he tried. I don't know how hard he tried, but I know he gave up. What we can't control is always out by, outweighed, or what we can control is always outweighed by what we can't. So if we're going to really act in wisdom, we must place our faith in God, in the sovereign God who controls all things. 
I'm not suggesting we throw everything he's given us an ability to know to the wind. I'm suggesting we trust him more. Just because you can't see how he's going to make something work doesn't mean he can't make something work. What we can control is always outweighed by what we can't. So if we're going to act wisely, we must place our faith in God. And then finally, the third thing I I think that I would have us see here is what we can accomplish will always leave us needy. Wise action always requires faith because what we can accomplish always leaves us needy. I notice in all three, all of these things that he lists, the things we know and, and, and don't know, the things we can control and the things we can't control, I notice in every one of them, we have some part to play. We have a part to play in making babies. We have a part to play in planting crops. We have a part to play in giving and acting generously. We have a part to play in so much. but we don't have power to make any of that stuff actually happen. The reality is is that we have a part to play, but we don't have the power to accomplish. God is sovereign here. What I noticed was there's a tension, and it's all the way across the Scripture. You can find it all the way across the Scripture. There's a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the providence of God and, and, and the will of man. Like there, There's this tension that, that seems to reside everywhere. Now, I've struggled with that. I've, I've struggled in my life with that, in my Christian walk with that. How, where does God's work end and mine begin? Like, Did he robotically make me choose him? Was his providence such that, that, that he removed my humanity from me, my ability to, to think and act and feel and respond? Or did he do some work that's different? Well, just a few years ago, I've used this quote a number of times with you, and I, I, many of you will have heard it before, but just a few years ago, I, I, I came across this quote from Jonathan Edwards. It's in a, at the back of a hymnal, and it's given me such, such peace. To understand how this all works together. In efficacious grace, we are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. God produces all. We act all. For that is what he produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We are the only proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. See, God is as sovereign over the ends as he is the means. Or let's say it the other way. God is as sovereign over the means as he is the ends. He is sovereign over the process by which we reach the end we reach. So why do we pray if God is sovereign? Because God has sovereignly decreed that he works through prayer. Why do we evangelize if God is sovereign? Because God has sovereignly decreed that his people would be the mouthpiece by which he'd make his glory known. Why do we read the word if God is sovereign and can just make us know? Because God has sovereignly determined that it's his word that would make us righteous and sanctify us and prepare us for every good work. God is sovereign over ends and means. And he calls us to walk in them because we don't have the wisdom to walk apart from them. We don't have the power to accomplish anything without him. 
See, if we're going to act truly in wisdom, then we must walk in such a way that we trust the one who can accomplish all he intends to accomplish. We must walk in faith of the one who can do all he's decided to do. But we must walk in a way in which it shows we are trusting him. And not ourselves. And not our wisdom. And not our power. And not our control. Wise action will always require faith in God. Because what we can accomplish is always going to leave us needy. In the words of Solomon, what we can accomplish is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But what God can do is bring dead people to life. What God can do is do what none of us can. What God can do may not make sense to us based on what we can observe. (laughs) But it is eternal. It lasts forever. It always succeeds. So even when we feel like we're throwing bread on water, we can trust that God will bring a successful result. Wise action always requires faith in God. Because without faith in God, we can't please him, we can't find him, and we can't enjoy his reward. Hebrews eleven four through 6. By faith, Abel offered to God more a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous God, commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith. Though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was... And and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We must believe that he exists, that we must believe that he rewards those who seek him out. We must have faith if we are going to please him, find him, and enjoy his reward. But then I would tag to that at the, at the uh, finishing up or the summarization of what uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews chapter 11 as this hall of witnesses, if you will. He writes in Hebrews chapter 12 and shows us that without faith in God, we won't follow Jesus. See, it took faith for these people to to stand and endure and live through the difficulties of following and trusting in God. And Jesus shows us that. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, Therefore, since since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all the people that the writer has been addressing. These people whose lives are witnesses to the faithfulness of God as they have trusted him and lived in faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Let us throw our bread on the water. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
The reality is, is that a lot of the things that our Lord calls us to are difficult to fathom. Difficult to understand how they will bring some level of success. They come at a cost to us. Prayer. You got to turn off the TV and you got to isolate yourself a little bit so that you can focus your thoughts on him. Bible reading. Well, it's not nearly as entertaining as that series I'm watching. Evangelism. I might be called a holy roller. I might be called a Bible thumper. People might not be my friends. But what may happen is you might find a brother or a sister who trusts God with you and who begins to worship alongside you and who joins you in the mission. You see, the reality is conventional wisdom will never let us follow Jesus and live like Jesus. Because we're going to have to endure the difficulty for the joy that's set before us. Instead of for the momentary light and fleeting joy that we can cling to right now. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. When we follow him in faith... We are united to the God who knows all, who does all, and controls all. Every act of wisdom requires faith. The question is, where is your faith that's guiding your wisdom? There's only one worthy. Our God and Father who sent his Son to die in our place and for our sin that we might know the joy of eternal life. Let's pray.